We turn this evening to Ephesians chapter 2. For preparatory this evening, we are going to consider the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. God willing, for Lord's Supper, we'll consider verses 4 through 6. So pay attention especially to the first three verses. This is our text. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So far we read this evening. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider this text this evening in preparation for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, God willing, we see that the little conjunction and with which the text begins shows a connection with what has gone before. The apostles continuing the subject that he began in chapter 1, even though he takes up a little different aspect of that subject now in chapter 2, but the central theme of this epistle, of this epistle is the glorious body of Christ. Our attention is called to the blessedness of the place that is ours as members of Christ's body. But the focus of the inspired apostle is decidedly God-centered. Blessed be God is the starting point. So he is setting forth what God has done even according to his own sovereign and eternal good pleasure, still more when we speak of this great salvation, we must remember that it is all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That must be our knowledge as we come to the Lord's table too. All blessings come through him, from him, and by him, and therefore you and I must be in him. 
The purpose of the apostle in setting forth these glorious truths is that we might know and rejoice in this wonder work of God's grace. In the verses before us, we see that wonder work of God's grace against the background of the devastating consequences of our guilt in Adam. And you hath he quickened. Now, do you notice the words hath he quickened in verse 1 are in italics. That means they've been added, they've been inserted, but in this case, they express indeed the thought of the first verse as is evident from the contrast between the first three verses and verses 4 through 6. And especially verse 5 brings that out when it points out that Even when we were dead in sin, God hath quickened us together with Christ. So that in the first verse, the thought is immediately upon God who has overcome all our death. Before that great God, the apostle sets you and me. What a contrast. And you. But God, that's the contrast. A more stark contrast there cannot be than the contrast between what we once were and what God has now made us by his sovereign, irresistible grace. And for that reason, the apostle points out, first of all, our condition apart from God's wonder work of grace. If we are not clear about our natural state and condition, we will not see why the power of God's grace is essential. This knowledge is absolutely necessary if we are properly to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning with true faith. Whenever you find those who do not grasp the biblical truth and wonder of salvation, you may be sure they have never understood the biblical doctrine of sin. They've never seen themselves as they really are before God. Many think of Christianity very superficially. But the Bible tells us that the Christian is one who has undergone a tremendous change By the power of God's sovereign, irresistible grace, he has been changed. Apart from that change, we are dead in sin. And that's the truth set before us in the first three verses of Ephesians 2. So we consider what it is to be dead in sin. We notice, first of all, the meaning. Secondly, the explanation. Finally, the manifestation. When the Word of God refers to us as being dead in trespasses and sins, the first question we have to ask is, what does this mean? And it's very important that we receive a clear answer to that question. Let's remember, however, that the purpose of considering the subject is not merely to humble us, but to lead us 
to understand the greatness and glory of our redemption in Christ Jesus. That's also the reason we examine ourselves in the light of God's Word prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. The Ephesian Christians had already embraced the gospel. They were recipients of the blessings of salvation. But subject as they were to temptation and living in a world rife with paganism and opposition to the gospel, and experiencing a daily battle that brought them face to face with the influence of their own sinful flesh, the apostle longed for them to be clear about the greatness of God's power toward all who believe. So he prayed that the eyes of their understanding be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They had light, but he longed for them to see even more clearly. And he stated that purpose very clearly in the last several verses of chapter 1. It's necessary that we also see that purpose in considering this very personal and humbling truth about being dead in sin. Otherwise, we will find this truth quite meaningless to us personally and probably will even take offense at its consideration. After all, we like to hear things that will cheer us up. Tell us that all is well. We go to the doctor, we hardly want to hear a diagnosis of death. But the Apostle rightly understands that the first measurement of this exceeding great power of God, the magnitude of His grace, is to be taken against the depths of the sin out of which we have been raised. Because you can't understand salvation. You cannot understand life as it is in this world at this very moment unless you understand the biblical doctrine of sin. And this biblical doctrine of man takes us to the stark reality. Man's natural state is one of being dead in trespasses and sins. It's striking. Paul doesn't skirt the issue here. He doesn't downplay anything. He simply takes up the scalpel and begins cutting through all the periphery in order immediately to expose the radical nature of the disease. Man's not merely sick. He's dead. Now, obviously, Paul isn't speaking of of physical death because he goes on immediately to to state that in this state we walked according to the course of this world and had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. He is speaking, therefore, of a state and condition of spiritual death. 
dead is a powerful word, isn't it? We were not almost dead. We're not desperately ill. We were dead. There was no spiritual life in us. There was a complete spiritual devastation of our nature so that we were left, not with a physical, but with a spiritual corpse. And that's true yet today for any who are not in Christ by a true faith. Scripture explains what that death involves, and it is horrible. Death is the antithesis to life. It's the very opposite. God in Christ is life, so says the Scripture. In Him only is the source of life. And that's true even as far as our physical existence is concerned, Acts 17, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. But that's also true of our spiritual existence. Life is only from God in Christ. And that life is defined in Scripture, especially as fellowship with God. And so the Lord himself prayed to his heavenly Father, as recorded in John 17, verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Life is to enjoy the fellowship of the ever-blessed God, to experience his approval and his favor, to hear him and to converse with him, speaking his praises, that means to, that death is to be without him. Paul goes on in this chapter, verse 12, to speak of that death in terms of being without Christ, having no hope, without God in the world. To be dead is to be without God. To you and I who now know his fellowship, that's the most horrible thought imaginable. To be without God. Not to have any access to Him. To be outside His life. Maybe to talk about Him, but to be estranged from His favor. What a horrible existence. To be without God. Dead in sin means also that such a man is ignorant of spiritual things and of spiritual life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The one who's dead in sin doesn't know the things of the Spirit. He's not even interested in such things. The man who's not a Christian finds God's word and the preaching of God's word insufferably boring. He doesn't find television boring. 
He doesn't find scandalous news reports boring. He doesn't find gossip boring. But he has no use for the things of God. He might be motivated even for various carnal reasons to subject himself to church attendance or, or some religious appearance, but they have no appeal to him. He can't help it. He just sees nothing in it. And therefore, he's not interested. He's spiritually dead. But this death involves not just a lack of life, an absence of fellowship with God, a disinterest in the things of God. This death is active in its opposition to God. From that point of view, Scripture makes clear that that the death of the sinner is a putrefying death, not unlike physical death. When the body dies, it doesn't just disappear. Nor does the process of corruption stop there. In fact, a corpse left by itself, unburied, will produce terrifying and corrupting effects. Its poisonous gases, its abhorrent decay will emit not only the most, ex- the most offensive stench, but can itself cause sickness and death. There's an active rottenness in death. Not only does the dead sinner not like the things of God, has no desire for them, he despises them. He hates the Word. Not merely because it isn't interesting to him, but because he knows that Word condemns him. That's what Paul referred to in Romans 8 when he said in verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. His life isn't blessed by God, it's cursed. And therefore it's miserable. The life of one dead in sin is a miserable life. Look beneath the the, the surface of that superficial happiness and you see the unhappiness screaming at you. There's no peace. And we all know what that life is about. We've all been there. Still more, that spiritual death is characterized in the second verse as being a walk according to the course of this world. What a powerful indictment. Like seeks like. Death seeks death. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world. And this world is referred to in Galatians 1 verse 4 as this present evil world. Doesn't mean the physical universe. It has reference to the outlook and mentality of the human race as embraced by the power of sin. 
Apart from Christ, we were governed by the mind and outlook of the world and age in which we live. Even now, as Christians, we know what that means because we still have that old man, our sinful flesh, that has a hankering after the opinions and customs of this world and their way of thinking when it would fit our sense of pleasure. But when you think about this matter more broadly, people are always in bondage to public opinion. Most lives are controlled by the mindset of this present evil world. The way they talk, the language that's found acceptable, the way they spend their money and consume goods, the places they go, the leniency with which they raise their children. Man is dead in sin. Dead in sin. He's controlled by the mind of the world, the age of propaganda, the age of advertising, and controlled by it without even knowing it. And this pattern is set, according to the text, by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The prince in this case is Satan. That evil principle that sweeps along the children of the world is worked by the devil in all his power. Satan is the prince of this world, this sinful, fallen world. He's not omnipresent, so he operates through his devils, of which he has multitude. He's the powerful head of those evil spiritual powers and forces that that literally fill the air, that govern and rule those under his control. And that spirit of evil wrought by the devil and his hosts is worked in the children of disobedience. That is, they have access to the hearts of men. That isn't true merely of the pariahs of our society. The Putins and the Hitlers and so on throughout history, this isn't a matter of personalities. Some of the worst being characterized by this horrible embrace of the devil and his hosts. The text speaks of all men. And let's understand, because that's this is why it's so important for us to, to know the power of God in Jesus Christ, of which the apostle speaks in the context, We also, who are the redeemed, are still confronted by all this horrible darkness and have to wrestle against the very spirit of sin that works in the children of disobedience. It seems that that many who live bearing the name Christian live as if there's no struggle to be fought with the prince of the power of the air. 
Many would even insist that the Christian life ought not struggle, ought have no conflict, ought only to live in peace. That's not biblical reality. That's a terrible conception of the Christian life. No wonder much of the much of the world of, of Christianity has become indistinguishable from the world. The most amazing thing is that any of us survive our walk in this present evil world. Let's understand it's only by the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Because by nature, we are dead in sin. What's the explanation for this dreadful power of sin? For this condition of death that embraces all men? The first indication of an answer to this question is found in the very last part of verse 2, where you have reference to the children of disobedience. The essential primary trouble of man is disobedient. That's what has brought us into spiritual death. That's what led to all our troubles and all our misery. Sin, you see, is not the absence of good. Sin is deliberate. It's active. It's a departure from God. It's disobedience. It's a questioning of God's right to command us. In other words, it's rebellion against the living God. That permeates our entire being. The very heart of all rebellion against God is found in man's denial of God's sovereignty. By nature, we resent the the fact that we are only creatures, subjects of the sovereign king. We want to rule our own lives. We want to assert our self-sufficiency, our independence. But the Bible makes very clear we've made ourselves rebels. And in doing so, we made ourselves servants of the devil himself. My will is free, man likes to say. The Bible tells us man's freedom was lost in the fall. What freedom he now has is freedom within the embrace of the depravity of his nature. So that now he's free only to do what is evil. Not necessarily in the sight of men, because they're blind in their determination of what is good and what is evil. But evil in God's sight. Because as he tells us in Romans 14, verse 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So the apostle speaks of the children of disobedience. 
Man has become a child of his father, the devil, and the lusts of his father he now does. John 8, verse 44. And that's the depth to which man has sunk in sin. And yet all he does, he does deliberately. He wills to sin. He enjoys sin. He even glories in his sin. But there's more. The explanation for this state and condition of spiritual death that embraces all men is also found in the last part of verse 3, which teaches that by nature we are children of wrath. The condition of the human race as children of disobedience is the result of God's wrath. God has brought the punishment incurred by our guilt. What is that wrath of God? God's wrath is the reaction of His holiness over against all unrighteousness. God is holy. He's the perfectly righteous God. All perfection is found in Him. And therefore, He's always consecrated to Himself. He knows Himself. He loves Himself. He seeks Himself. He glorifies Himself because He's the perfect, self-sufficient God. Even in the creature and in all the works of His hands, God seeks His own glory. That's His holiness. He's consecrated to Himself in all things. For us, for all men, this holiness of God means it's our everlasting obligation as His creatures to consecrate ourselves in all things to Him. We may not be seekers of our own glory, self-seekers. We must seek Him in His glory. We must, as the summary of the law tells us, love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. When we do this, we know we have that sense of God's fellowship and favor, His love, The consequence is indescribable happiness. But we fail to seek Him. We fail to honor and love Him. We turn against Him. God reacts against us in His anger. He pursues us constantly, making us miserable. His wrath brings the sinner into pain and misery and sorrow and anguish of soul and desolation and darkness and fear and trembling. So we, that we, what we read in Isaiah's prophecy is very true. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. 
And when the sinner persists in his rebellion, God casts him down into everlasting desolation. That's hell. That's his holy attitude towards sin. And such is man. So are we objects of that wrath by nature? That expression by nature is found six times in Paul's epistles. And the expression refers to what we are by birth as members of the fallen race apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So that the teaching here, in harmony with the whole Bible, is that we are born into this world with a disobedient nature. Born dead in trespasses and sins. We are born children of wrath. So that not only is our depravity seen in that we commit sin and show ourselves disobedient, but sin is in us. It's a, it's a very part of our nature. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, we read this morning, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The mistake that we can easily make is to think of sin only in terms of particular actions or things. We have to consider all sin and the very condition of our depravity in terms of our relationship to God. Instead of being lovers of God and living to His glory, as is our calling, we show that we know nothing of such a relationship. It's not man's environment that makes him go astray. Your friends have an influence in your life, for good or for bad. The Bible speaks to that. James 4, verse 4, for example. But the people that you hang around with are not to blame for your sinful actions. It's easy to point the finger of blame. We've all done that going all the way back to Adam. That blame game has continued right up to you and to me. But the fact is, and we must well understand it, we sin because we are sinners. By nature, the children of wrath, even as others. 
You can give a child the most ideal conditions in which to grow up. And you should. And surround him with solid instruction. He will still go wrong in them. If man in his original state of righteousness, living in the perfect paradise of the garden, could fall into sin, how much more us who have already fallen. The tragedy of man, our misery, lies at a very, very deep level. It's in us and in our spiritual death under the wrath of God. That's what we are by nature. And don't overlook the fact the Apostle speaks of this as a description of us all. This death, this depravity, is universal. Among whom, the children of disobedience, We all had our conversation in time past. There's none righteous, no, not one. The manifestation of that spiritual death and depravity is disgusting to us who now have the mind of the Spirit. The conversation that is the whole life of the sinner, all his conduct and thoughts before the face of God is characterized by fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we considered that this morning in connection with the Tenth Commandment. The fact that we have desires is not the problem. The problem is that those desires have now become subject to our sinful nature, both of the flesh and of the mind. And when the Apostle exposes this aspect of our existence, he emphasizes once again, as if that needs emphasis, sin is not merely a matter that rises from outside of us, from our relationship to the world and the devil, the horror of that spiritual death, of that corruption, is that it first rises from within. We have a polluted nature. And so when you go back to verse 1, you find that our whole life in this world can be summed up by two words, trespasses and sin. As we are by nature, we're dead in trespasses and and sins. Trespasses are departures from God's law. The narrow way that leads to life everlasting. We're all gone out of the way, Paul writes in Romans 3, confirming what was written in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And the word sins embraces all the depravity of our nature as it corrupts our whole way of life and humbly we join the apostle in confessing this about ourselves you do don't you 
humbly we confess that the guilt of Adam and the depravity of mankind is our guilt and depravity. Humbly we bow before the Scriptures which expose us. Apart from the wonder work of God's grace in Jesus Christ, We bore the image of our father, the devil. There was no reason whatsoever in us that God should love such wretches of depravity. And people of God, that's what we shall see when we examine ourselves in the light of God's Word this week in preparation for the Lord's Supper. That is what we must see as the background against which we lay hold of Christ and all His benefits. Does this truth instill in you a sense of wonder? Wonder that God has saved you? Listen again. And you, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Can the dead body raise itself? Can the dead rise and eat? No, nor can the dead sinner kindle one spark of life in himself or rise and follow after Jesus. There's only one power that could save you and me, the power of an almighty, absolutely sovereign, wonderfully gracious and merciful God. God who is merciful and gracious and bring life out of death, and has. He has quickened that which was dead in trespasses and sins. That's his power. And that quickening of the dead sinner is regeneration. It's that by which the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see and ears to hear, spiritual minds to understand the depths of our depravity and the magnificent power of our Savior. Look at the pit out of which you've been raised. The depths into which you had sunk your former terrible, precarious position, and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has plucked us out of the grasp of Satan. Is that your confession, beloved? No wonder the apostle looking at the church says, Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next Sunday morning, we must join him in that confession as we partake with the mouth of faith 
the body and blood of our Savior. Amen. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the wonder work of Thy grace, in how great Thou art. Blessed art Thou, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.